Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, February 5th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. The past few years have brought a number of disasters when it comes to the ocean. We've had the devastation of hurricanes, including what is still going on in Puerto Rico with Hurricane Maria. There's been a number of oil spills like the Deepwater Horizon spill. We're even now talking here in the U.S. about opening up the Arctic Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling and that having potential consequences for the Arctic Ocean around it. And that's not even mentioning the latest reports on plastic invading our ocean uh, and the great coral bleaching event uh, at the Great Barrier Reef. All of this points to an idea that we need to potentially rethink what ocean conservation looks like in the context of climate change and natural disasters that we have a hand in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard for anyone to take personal responsibility for the oceans, right? They, by definition, are in between borders. It's also hard to take responsibility for like two thirds of the entire planet uh, in terms of thinking about it in that way. But the ocean is such a driver of not only um, making healthy communities, they're an economic driver in, in a lot of cases. They're transport, obviously, fishing communities, uh, and then supporting the larger ecosystem. And without that carbon sink, we'd be in a much bigger uh, challenge when it comes to climate change. So this week, I spoke to a scientist who is really trying to rethink what modern ocean conservation can look like, one that's much more people-centered, that takes economic conditions into account, that takes policy realities into account. uh, And the fact that we are still moving towards a more urbanized population center. So thinking about ocean conservation in the context of New York and Houston and Los Angeles, as much as we think about it in those pristine protected waters off the coast of so many countries. So this week we have on Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. She's a marine biologist turned policy expert. She's worked at the EPA and led a number of foundations that are all looking at rethinking ocean conservation. And she's now doing so at her own nonprofit called Ocean Collective, which is really about how we do ocean conservation in urban environments, including New York City. So let's take a short break. 
We'll be back with my interview with Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to start with the the personal story. It seems like every conservationist we've ever had on the show has had that story in their life, that moment that the, something clicked to them, that there is something in this world prote- worth protecting. And for you, I'm curious about it because you're a city girl. You you grew up in Brooklyn. I sure um, did. When, when did you have that moment that the ocean became so important to you? It was the summer of 1985. I was five years old and my parents took me to Key West, Florida. There was this really cheap airline at the time that went down to Florida, Eastern Airlines, which quickly went out of business. But at the time we could get a cheap vacation. So my parents found this um, bed and breakfast that had a lovely pool. And the point of the trip was for me to learn how to swim. So I was in love with the water and I learned how to swim. And then they took me on a glass bottom boat ride and I saw a reef for the first time. And I saw all of these fish coming up to the surface and how colorful they were. And they had all the kids on the back deck of the boat feeding the fish cheese popcorn, just not a thing that's cool to do now. I hope we all know. Um, I don't think it was a thing, a cool thing to do back then. (laughs) Well, I thought it was extremely cool. And I was like armpit deep in a super sized bag of cheese popcorn and I'm super allergic to cheese. So I'm breaking out in hives from all this cheese dust, uh, before my mother catches on to what's happening. Um, but I didn't even care because I was so enamored with what is this other world underwater Um, that is so colorful and so foreign to me. And I just wanted to learn everything about it. And the next day we went to visit the aquarium and I got to hold a sea urchin in my hand and feel probably a thousand of those little tube feet crawling across my hand um, and all of its needles waving around. And uh, I just, I had never imagined that there were all these different types of life um, and so, yeah, I was pretty much hooked. And how did that translate towards conservation? Because at least when I was younger, my feeling towards conservation was about uh, was this idea that we would protect areas and by protect, meaning don't touch, don't use, don't don't access their off limits. Don't manhandle uh, sea urchins. <laughs> yeah. But it moreover, like protection meant humans don't go there anymore. Um, and I don't think that's what modern conservation is all about. So I'm curious about your own pathway into conservation and what, what it actually means to you. So I took a sort of meandering path. So yeah, at five, I decided I want to be a marine biologist. And then at 10, I was learning about the civil rights movement and decided I wanted to be the lawyer that got the next Martin Luther King out of jail. I didn't want to be Martin Luther King. That obviously was like really scary and didn't end well. So I then, when I was 15, did my first backpacking trip. And I spent the summer living in a tent in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado on the Continental Divide. And I just fell madly in love with forests and mountains. Um, And so I wanted to be a park ranger. 
And so my falling in love with nature and thinking about conservation actually comes much more from a terrestrial perspective, from this idea of national parks on land. And only later um, in college, when I studied abroad in Turks and Caicos in the Caribbean, did I start really thinking about what marine protected areas meant and studying this place that was protecting conch and lobster and trying to understand if that was actually helping the local fishery. It was a, I lived on South Caicos, which was a fishing village of just a few hundred people. So that was the first time it all came together for me. So what does it mean to manage uh, a marine park? How does that uh, affect the local fishing community? And I was in the water every day, uh, snorkeling and, and counting things and learning all the Latin names of everything. Um, and thinking about the, the social and cultural and economic aspects in addition to the ecology. And that's what made me think I could make a career out of it because just the science or just the policy or just the economics or anthropology, um, I don't know if I could have done that forever, but that crazy puzzle of trying to put that all together and use these ocean resources without using them up um, became my passion. Let's start with some of the science because uh, ocean science is a, is a wide ranging field, also an area of of pretty interesting exploration. We have there's a lot of ocean science left to explore, but some of that science has become of grave importance uh, because of of current events. And I want to start with um, what has happened in the Gulf in the last year, which is massive hurricanes and flooding. Uh, Puerto Rico is still feeling the effects as we're still recording this from from the aftermath of Hurricane Maria and Houston went through an amazing flooding scenario uh, that has devastated uh, and much of their infrastructure. And I think that has colored uh, a lot of uh, local viewpoints on ocean and the water surrounding them. I'm curious what you see the link between something like hurricanes and ocean sciences right now. I think the one thing that a lot of people don't think about is that oceans are actually a really important part of our climate system. The ocean is a big regulator of our climate and our weather patterns. When we think of hurricanes in particular, when the ocean is warmer, the storms tend to be stronger because that warm water um, gives the storms more power. It lets them last longer. Um, so. Uh, and there's more, and that's because more moisture is evaporating from the ocean into the air. So there's just like a lot, a lot more water to come back down. So that, I guess, is the first thing I think of is that the ocean is really a big part of the climate. The ocean has also absorbed about 90%, I believe, of the ex excess heat that um, has been produced, Um as part of global warming. So just imagine how much warmer this planet would be if the ocean weren't absorbing most of that heat and a lot of that carbon dioxide, dioxide as well, which is um, leading the oceans to become more and more acidic and harder for shelled animals to build their shells um, like oysters and mussels and clams. And so it's really all connected, the climate and the weather and hurricanes are affecting coastal places and islands is really the most dramatic example of that. 
the other thing that strikes me is that these environments that we're talking about, uh, much of Puerto Rico uh, and Houston in particular, these are big urban centers. Their their relationship to the ocean is going to be dramatically different than those communities you mentioned on on Caicos. They they're they oftentimes don't have work in in fields that they connect directly to the ocean like those fishermen uh, off the coast. So I'm curious, like, how do we take this overwhelming wealth of data saying like, well, with hurricanes and flooding, we need to renew sort of, uh, you know, different uh, wetland habitats and uh, and areas to protect ourselves from that. How is that being sold and communicated to those communities there? And what is their general response to that move in conservation? Or is that even the right direction for them to be going? The short answer to that one is I don't know. I don't know how much conversation there has been on the ground in Puerto Rico and in Houston about ecosystem restoration as part of the hurricane recovery. And that connection of two things is a really hard one for people to be thinking about when you're worried about just recovering from the devastation of a storm. But post-hurricane, when we're in this process of rebuilding and and re-envisioning and um, restructuring um, how our lives are intertwined with the coast, it's actually the perfect time, but it's also a really sensitive time to have that conversation. So... Um, coastal ecosystems like mangroves and seagrasses and coral reefs and wetlands can all have a a really positive impact on protecting us from storms. They slow down, you know, the wind and and reduce the wave energy. They can really help minimize flooding a bit um, and other storm damage. So it's important to have those ecosystems intact. And and one of the strongest examples of that is actually after the tsunami in Indonesia a dozen or so years ago, the places that had mangrove ecosystems intact, those places fared much better in the wake of that uh, tsunami. Whereas places that had bulldozed their mangroves to build aquaculture ponds to farm shrimp, um, those places were really uh, really devastated. And so when we think about coastal development and why it's important to protect habitats, it's not just because they're beautiful or for biodiversity. It's actually simply to protect ourselves. I mean, those are natural barriers. They're resilient barriers. Whereas you build a storm wall, um, you know, that's theoretically a great way to fortify an area, but it doesn't have the same resilience. It doesn't grow back. <laughs> um, and it doesn't also provide all those other benefits of absorbing carbon, which coastal ecosystems are better at absorbing carbon than any forest on land, which is not very many people know about that. Um, so yeah, I think there's, it's a post-hurricane is a really important time to be thinking about conservation and ecosystem restoration as part of the longer term protection for the future. But it's also a time when people just want to get roofs back on their homes and they want to make sure they have clean water. Um, But when we think about how you have clean water, also, obviously, that's related to ecosystem protection so that there are, you know, clean water sources for people to fall back on. So in a lot of ways, storms force us to acknowledge how dependent we are on nature 
And especially in cities, it's really easy to lose sight of that interdependence because, you know, of the concrete jungle that we're surrounded by. We forget that these these marshes, these oyster reefs, uh, these mangroves and coral reefs are all doing a lot to protect us and to feed us. You've done some work in ocean conservation in New York City itself. Uh, convening leaders from a lot of different fields to talk not only about policy changes, but also how to envision these urban centers as as leaders in ocean conservation. Are there any lessons from what has happened in New York that can be applied to these other communities that are going through these transitions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first lesson I think is that you got to play the long game with this stuff. I mean, you have to just invest in that balance between development and conservation as part of your overall philosophy. So this last semester at NYU, I taught a seminar on uh, urban ocean conservation. And in on March 12th, I'll be in Austin at South by Southwest um, leading a panel on that as well. And so it's as a, a kid from Brooklyn who went off into the world and became a marine biologist and worked in the Caribbean and lived on the West Coast and worked in D.C. and in policy for the federal government and moving back to New York last year, I've been thinking a lot about what does ocean conservation look like in cities? Because New York has over 500 miles of coastline or riverfront And we very rarely think of ourselves as a coastal city. Um, We have a surf community that's um, flourishing now in the Rockaways. We have whale watching that's happening in New York Harbor. You can reliably see whales um, at their peak season. I don't know how I feel about about that. That seems (laughs) bizarre to think about whales um going around new york because i still have that perception you know from seinfeld of like kramer swimming in the east river and how polluted it was um yeah but you're the saying hudson that's not the... and the east river are cleaner now than they've been in over 100 years there are seahorses living on piers under piers in the hudson river and so it new york city is actually a success story but in this really boring way where we put in policies for pollution control, you know, four decades ago that are now starting to pay off in improved water quality, which leads to improved biodiversity and, and healthier ecosystems. So, um, so yeah, I think New York is, it could be better. Let me not, you know, overstate it, but it is in fact a healthier harbor ecosystem than it has been um, in the last century. And, and that is, that is entirely because of, um, really good policies that were enforced. So when I think about conservation, obviously the science is important in a lot of different aspects. We need to know what the problem is, uh, you know, through scientific assessment, we need to know if the policies are actually working and how they might need to be adjusted through scientific assessment. Obviously there's a lot of work when we think about active restoration projects of, you know, how the ecosystem dynamics work and how to um, use that knowledge to, for example, replant oysters. Um, But yeah, New York City is doing okay. 
And more days than not, the Hudson is safely swimmable according to water quality standards. It's really after, you know, a big rainfall when all the sort of water washes out of the city into the rivers that you definitely don't want to be there. And and I'm kind of a wuss about uh, murky water anyway. I'm I'm uh, I spent most of my time swimming in the Caribbean growing up and in graduate school, so. You won't catch me in the Hudson on a normal Wednesday. And I'm also like the water should be over 70 degrees. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're recording this in January. I wouldn't <laughs> encourage you to go out right now and take a dip. Uh, I'm curious, though, like with New York being such a success case, I mean, New York's wonderful, but many, a lot of the coastal communities in New York are affluent. Like when we start to branch out, many of the coastal communities, especially the ones that that are at the at the front of where climate change is 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 changing uh, the the environment there. There are communities that have much less money that are much more vulnerable. And uh, how do we view conservation and uh, the idea of of justice together? Because these are groups that don't necessarily have the the means to make the same adaptations as other communities to these changes. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. This is a really core part of what I think about um, is that nexus between ocean conservation and social justice. So sort of ocean justice for short. And I think this concept of environmental justice or who benefits and who's getting the short end of the stick, who's getting screwed by whether it's air pollution or water pollution, we think about Flint or and the water quality there for drinking, or we think about um, Standing Rock and the indigenous tribes um, trying to protect their water from the pipeline. It's the same thing when it comes to the ocean, that the communities who are the most vulnerable, are the most marginalized, have really borne the brunt of a lot of this stuff. Um, and that goes with uh, ocean pollution as well as overfishing and sea level rise um, and storm impacts. And New York City is actually not really the exception to that. When we think about who got hit the hardest by Hurricane Sandy five years ago, um, you know, Coney Island and the Rockaways are not rich areas. And those places were hit super hard, much harder than, you know, the, the wealthier neighborhoods in lower Manhattan and, and, you know, and upper Manhattan. So it is kind of a a story that keeps repeating itself and playing out repeatedly. So when I think about what ocean conservation should look like going forward, it's, it really is, as you mentioned, this sort of approach of how do we protect vulnerable communities? um, And what does that look like? I mean, I really started thinking about this in the storm context after Hurricane Katrina. And we all saw how devastating that was um, on poor communities and communities of color who were already struggling and didn't have the resources to rebuild or just to move. So, um, and this is something we're seeing right now all across the Caribbean, which was really badly impacted by this off the charts hurricane season. The island of Barbuda, where I worked for um, for three years when I was executive director for the Waite Institute, they were really pummeled and are having trouble rebuilding. And the question there, and in a lot of places post storm, is 
who is taking advantage of this situation to, you know, take over a bunch of property or, you know, just further disenfranchise people. There's this crazy wave of disaster capitalism um, as coined by Naomi Klein that, you know, sort of is sweeping through um, the Caribbean right now. So in Barbuda, people's land rights are being taken away, which is something that's really close to my heart and I'm worried about. That's just this like, okay, well, we're going to use this as a way to privatize what was for centuries a communal land system. How are these these events shaping people's attitudes towards conservation. I mean, I could really easily see, you know, somebody that's been in Puerto Rico or, you know, in the Rockaways feeling like, um, you know, investment in in uh, ocean conservation is uh, is a waste. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. do anything for them. Um, I have is some that good what we're news um, in, in response to that, actually, which is that communities of color uh, black and Latino communities especially are much stronger advocates for conservation measures for policy changes than their white counterparts. So these frontline communities really do see the need for conservation. And even though the trade-off can be really hard or the discussion can be really hard when you're already dealing with so much, It's not a matter of convincing people that conservation is necessary. It's a matter of talking about a way to do it that is sensitive to the economic realities and the cultural context of that place. So um, I don't think, uh, obviously people need to have their basic needs met of food and shelter before anyone's going to be thinking about how to make sure, you know, the marine protected area is okay. Um, but I think I'm actually really bolstered by, um, how much communities of color value conservation according to national polls, um, and how under leveraged that, um, opinion really is. And so if we think about how, if we think about the environmental movement, you know, you kind of picture a very white, often very male sort of like rugged mountaineer Patagonia catalog kind of vibe where in reality, the types of people that support good policy, um, for conservation are quite diverse. And so if we, use that information as motivation to really invest in diversifying the environmental movement, I think, uh, and the staff in these places, the staff of environmental organizations is about 16% people of color, whereas in America, people of color are about 32% of the population. And at the board level, it's about 5% people of color. So that's not to say diversity simply for diversity's sake, which I could make an argument for, but because without representation of these communities that are affected and without including a diversity of backgrounds, we're missing a lot of the solutions. We're missing a lot of the answers and opportunities and creative ideas just because we have you know only one or two types of people in the room. So I'm actually really hopeful about what will happen as the demographics of the people doing this work start to expand. And while you cited numbers for people working at conservancy organizations, I also imagine the numbers when it relates to scientists themselves are also yeah. 
equally dis- <laughs> uh, divergent. I've definitely been at like 2000 person marine science and conservation conferences and had that, you know, see one other black person in the hall and have the nod and and kind of like, I got your back look. <laughs> um, and so I really do try to make an effort to mentor all the young students of color who come to seek my advice when they're trying to figure out what is a career in this space look like? Because especially if you're the first in your family to go to college or get an advanced degree, there's a lot of pressure to choose a field that's more well understood or more obviously lucrative. Um, people don't think like, oh, I'll just, I'll go into marine conservation and make a good living. But executives at all of these NGOs make six figures. So it is actually a way you can do well and do good at the same time. But that is not widely known. So what can this look like? What does a modern conservation plan look like that takes in these community concerns? Because oftentimes we're talking about communities that rely upon the ocean for their livelihood, whether it's fishermen going out there and and uh, cultivating the sea or or even folks using the ocean as a means of, of transportation or tourism revenue. Because the old style of conservation that I mentioned off the top, the the look but don't touch probably doesn't work um, in the in the modern global world. So what does a modern ocean conservation plan look like? So the sort of cheating answer is that depends where it is. And and the reason that I say that is because a lot of my work has been uh, working very closely and deeply over years with coastal communities, with island communities. And so a lot of what the conservation approach looks like has to, has to do with how are people using the ocean locally and what are the um, cultural aspects of that relationship with the sea that need to be respected or else the rules will simply be broken. And so how do you match tradition with science and come up with a policy that will not only be effective, but be accepted by the community? Because um, enforcement is uh, the second best thing to compliance. Do you want to pick a specific example from your from your prior work with one of these communities? Sure. So, so Barbuda is the place where I, I worked most recently. And the way that we approached it there was um, to spend an entire year listening to the community, um, holding uh, community meetings, town hall meetings, doing interviews one-on-one with fishermen and hotel operators um, and scientists, bringing in a team of scientists to really assess what the state of the resources actually is, you know, what map the habitats and understand the fish population dynamics, understand how things have changed over time already, what are sort of the natural cycles um, in place there versus what are the impacts of people. Um, And then, as you mentioned, it's figuring out that balance between, okay, maybe there are some places that you don't touch. Um, And then how do you sustainably use the rest? And so in Barbuda, the community uh, came up with a set of five protected areas that ended up covering about a third of their coastal waters being protected. And that's in the range of the 30 to 50 percent that scientists recommend that you do actually set aside. 
Um, and then the rest, they they figured out what types of fishing they wanted. And so the fishermen definitely didn't want people to use nets on the reefs because that damages the reefs, which means that not as many fish can live there. And they wanted to make sure other nursery habitats were protected, the wetland areas. Um, and there were some places where people are, are snorkeling and free diving for fish and they didn't want people using nets there. And in the shipping lanes, you don't want people swimming or setting nets. So it was all about zoning. So the approach that, um, we took there was not to say, okay, where are you going to stop touching everything? It wasn't about exclusively about protection. It was about figuring out a balance between all the different uses as a way to reduce conflict and create something sustainable. So we're really familiar with zoning on land, you know, residential, industrial, commercial, agricultural, and and park areas. But we can do the same thing in the ocean and think about how to balance, you know, aquaculture fish farming with uh, shipping and transportation, with fishing, with tourism, um, and then protections there as well. And, and offshore energy is obviously something that um, we have to think about too. So that's the approach I take. I try to think in this really big picture way about how to balance all these different uses, because obviously we're going to need to use the ocean uh, for food security and our economies, um, but then figure out how to do it in a way that makes sense scientifically uh, and within the local cultural context. So that process sounds great on on paper. It sounds like such a huge win for that community. But I also, I can't help but picture like the Parks and Rec town hall meetings that, (laughs) and just the, the amount of time it must take to get to that point to build a consensus on what zoning looks like. You know, I, I live in San Francisco. There's still fights every day about, about zoning in, um, in terms of our land use. And in the ocean, too. I mean, California, the process that I described in Barbuda took about a year and a half. And in California, it took 10 years under the Marine Life Protection Act because there's so many more people. There's so much more coastline. uh, There's so many more uses of the ocean that are happening out there. And it's I mean, in the end, it's just it's it's like uh, I would use the analogy of exercise and fitness. It's the kind of thing that you're never fit and then you can stop exercising, right? It's like a constant, you have to constantly maintain your health uh, as an individual. And we have to constantly think about how to maintain the health of the ocean. It's not something you set policies and then you're done and you walk away. You have to, you know, be monitoring and, and thinking adaptively. So now a lot of marine policies are written in this adaptive way. Adaptive management is is one of our our jargony buzzwords, which is how can you write something so that, you know, given the fact that ecosystems are dynamic and economies are dynamic and coastal communities are dynamic, how can we write our laws in a way that allows for that dynamism and enables us to revisit regulations as things change? So it's not a process that really ever ends, which sounds scary, but um, it's just the reality of the way that all these things work. The exception to that, I would say, is often the the hands-off protected areas, because if we keep changing the rules there, then we won't see those benefits of protection, which in the ocean are, those those become the, the spillover effect. Imagine like 
I don't know if you're as sort of uh, spacey as I can sometimes be where you leave the water running in your sink or something, which is obviously a terrible thing to do in California where there's a drought. Uh, but we think about that. It's that's that overflow of a sink or a bathtub when we let the population of uh, fish and marine life in a protected area recover. They obviously there's no walls, so they spill over into the surrounding areas and replenish those. And biodiversity flourishes outside of those areas, and the fish catches increase as well. So. Yeah, so protected areas should remain protected. And this is a real problem with the current administration thinking about opening up a lot of our sanctuaries to fishing and potentially to drilling, um, because then we'll lose all of those benefits. Um, And the U.S. is at about 16 percent marine protection. And as I mentioned, scientists are recommending more like 30 to 50. So we need to move forward and not backward on that. So a lot of the modern conservation policies you're talking about have only been in place for a decade in, you know, in some places like 15 to 20 years. And we've had a lot of conversations recently with scientists, scientists that like Kim Cobb that came back from uh, the Great Barrier Reef and was talking about the coral bleaching event Um Um, or other scientists that are witnessing such rapid change that they feel like time is running out. So do we have enough time, given how long it takes for humans to come to consensus on some of these things, versus what the science is telling us is happening underneath our feet based on the way we are polluting the environment? So yes and no, the answer to do we have enough time, because I think this is such a sciencey answer, but it depends. It's time to do exactly what and time to save exactly what, because we are already past the point where we can have a pristine ecosystem. We're approaching 8 billion people on the planet. You know, obviously we're not going to have perfectly healthy um, and perfectly pristine ecosystems. We, we have a big impact on the planet. The question is, um, for me, are we going to have... 10%, are we going to have 80%, are we going to have 60% of the, you know, the abundance and and splendor of nature. So, you know, sort of depending on my mood on the day, what side of the bed I wake up on, I'm sort of fighting for a different percentage. Some days I'm like, oh man, we'll be lucky if we get 20. And other days I'm like, I could totally see us getting back to 70. So that's, it's a spectrum. And we're, you know, so so we're fighting to get as close to 100 as possible. And we are running out of time um, to stay at that high end of the spectrum because of all the synergistic impacts of what we're doing. I mean, we haven't even touched on the sort of crazy plastic pollution that's happening in the ocean. We're dumping one ton of plastic into the ocean every four seconds, which is breaking down to smaller and smaller pieces, entering the food chains. We're now eating fish that are eating plastic. And we don't even know what the health impacts of that are going to be in the long term for people and the ecosystem. So we're definitely having a pretty crazy impact on the planet. But I'm still certainly very hopeful that that we won't totally run out of time. But it's just a matter of, yeah, what exactly the 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 future looks like. Cause it won't look like today. Um, 
So you're right that policy can be really tricky when you're not dealing with something static. You're dealing with something that's changing and you're dealing with humans and consensus is really hard. Most of the policies that I'm aware of that have been really cited as being extremely successful in terms of uh, conservation have been local and in a lot of cases, hyper-local. Small communities, small islands, small areas of, of the coast. The ocean doesn't care about our artificial borders that we've set up on land. The ocean is the ocean. Um, so I'm wondering if this hodgepodge approach of coastal communities coming up with their own solutions on the hyper-local level uh, is enough, or do we need national policies on conservation to really make a, a dent in creating the ocean environment that we want? We need both. I mean, the hyper-local stuff is really important because there are hyper-local issues and uses of the ocean that, you know, a federal government isn't really, doesn't have the intimacy with to understand what the best approach should be. But we are starting to, I would say, we are actually seeing successes at larger scales. We're seeing the EU come together and make some really important leaps forward as pertains to how to manage sustainable fishing. We're seeing countries, you know, commit to not doing offshore drilling. We're seeing countries start to ban a lot of single-use plastics that they're seeing end up in their waters. Um, There are some really significant things happening at federal and even regional levels. There are also regional fisheries management organizations um, that come together and, and set quotas for tuna and things like that. So, There is actually quite a lot of really good work being done at larger scales. And the UN, two years ago, for the first time ever, had a sustainable development goal that was about ocean conservation. So now we're seeing a lot of more coordinated efforts um, at the national and international level to meet the goals that were set, um, to meet the specific targets that were set under that life underwater sustainable development goal um, that are, you know, percents of protection and reduce reduction of pollution and the list goes on. So I would say it's actually not as bad as you described, um, with the exception perhaps being, oh, the United States of America, um, where we're definitely seeing a lot of things that are, um, are going in the wrong direction as far as what's being pursued at a federal level. But then you have Republican governors, like in Florida, stepping up and saying, no way are you going to open the coast of Florida to offshore oil and gas drilling. Because after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, the BP spill, they lost a whole season of tourism because their beaches were so polluted. Um, so and that's I, a huge economic impact. Huge economic impact. So conservation is actually really good for the economy. It's that's a point that people often either um, don't get or don't want to get um, that a healthy ecosystem. Obviously, there are more fish in it, so you can catch more fish. It's better for tourism to have um, clean beaches and reefs that are worth looking at. Um, catching a shark is actually worth a lot less than being able to take people scuba diving to see that shark hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, so. A healthy ecosystem actually is a win-win for 
in so many ways for the coastal protection that we discussed at the beginning, as far as resilience um, and protection from hurricanes, for uh, for tourism, for food security, for all the jobs that depend on the coastal economy. So it's not a sacrifice to do conservation. It's part of um, a thoughtful business plan, if nothing else. I want to end with a little story and your reaction to it. So, uh, you know, a huge percentage of people that live on this earth live near the ocean. Um, That's not surprising. And I was at my kid's school and I live in San Francisco. I live two and a half miles from the Pacific Ocean. And I met a kid in his class that had never seen the ocean. Two and a half miles. We live from the ocean. Never seen the ocean before. And I was struck at how that story sounds like an anecdote, but there's millions upon millions of of kids, adults, families that um, that don't think about the ocean because it's just not part of their life in a tangible way every day. How are we making the story of conservation relevant to them? I think so. That anecdote is something that I've seen play out in so many places. Uh, I went to grad school in San Diego and uh, they started a program at Scripps Institution of Oceanography to take kids from Compton in the inner city of Los Angeles to the beach and to take them down to Scripps and UCSD for the summer and start to teach them about, um, you know, these high school kids about coastal uh, ecology and marine biology, because it was so foreign, even though they're only a few miles from the shore. So I think that work is just as necessary as the policy work, getting people in touch with, physically in touch with what this means. So there's actually a growing body of research on the mental health benefits of interacting with the, with nature in general and the ocean in particular, it just, it keeps us sane. <laughs> it makes us happier. Um, it helps us all feel more connected. And so that's just as important as the policy work. And when we think about how to tell these stories, a lot of the work that I do is helping people connect the dots between the things they already care about um, and the ocean issues that I am trying to get people engaged with. So I once went to a class, um, this public high school class. Uh, sorry, it was it was uh, elementary school. I think the kids were like eight or ten years old, and the kids were all asking me a bunch of questions, and I was asking them about what they wanted to be when they grew up, um, and trying to help them understand how they could either do that job to help the ocean, or the ocean would help them do their job. And, you know, we talked about uh, ocean law and policy and we talked about science um, and we talked about, you know, beach vacations and all of this stuff. And then one kid was really thought he had me stumped and he said he wanted to be um, a WWE fighter or a what is the like a extreme fighting thing? Like the UFC? You mean the, yes, those people? that's the one. Um, he said he wanted to be a UFC fighter. And I said, oh, have you heard of The Rock? Uh, and he was like, yeah, of course I've heard of The Rock. And I said, well, do you know that The Rock eats 
like six codfish a day and has special freezers in his house built to hold all these fish so that he can have all this protein to be big and strong. And of course you need a healthy ocean because otherwise those fish won't be healthy and you won't be big and strong. You'll be sick because if the ocean is polluted, then the fish are polluted and then you can't win at fighting. (laughs) So we had a really interesting conversation about um, how all of this is connected. And, And so just trying to come up with different anecdotes and stories to help people understand how their lives actually are related to the health of the sea. Um, And it's not immediately obvious, but even at the most basic level, the ocean produces more than half the oxygen we breathe. The the phytoplankton, the tiny, tiny plants in the ocean produce more than half of the world's oxygen. So, um, and, and phytoplankton populations are actually on the decline because of climate change. So if we want to keep breathing, <laughs> if no, nothing else sticks and people just want to keep breathing and don't care about, uh, don't think they care about ocean conservation, then it matters even to you. I guess I wasn't expecting The Rock to make a appearance on this podcast, but I guess The Rock and conservation go together. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah, absolutely. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me, Kishore. So, you know, we're at a time, at least in the U.S. right now, of uh, getting rid of regulations as opposed to adding more. And, you know, the oceans are shared by many, many countries, uh, if not all of them, depending on what your perspective is. So how realistic is it that in, you know, introducing new zoning regulations is going to be at all adhered to? Uh, not. I think that, like, there is no no hint that this is a, a short-term solution. This is a long-term game anytime we, we do it. But I think the idea of having clarity around ocean use and, and management so that fisheries have clarity and long-term stability around areas they'll be able to 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 really use uh how much they'll be able to use it what the regulations are we don't really have that right now it's sort of the wild west in a lot of areas well we also do we have like i mean where are we in terms of mapping the oceans are there still large swaths of completely uncharted territory yeah there are but for the most part those are areas that aren't actively being used by humans in any way for the most part we're talking about ocean conservation in the context of ocean areas near land masses and near communities. And so when you think about, well, let's look at how New York is managing their waterways right next to one of the biggest cities in the world, where would you take a dip in the Hudson River right now? Probably not. But the idea that New York is moving to an area where that's going to be a possibility in the next five to 10 years. In fact, there's people doing it now, as Ayanna mentioned that we're getting to the point where we can clean things up and do it in a way that invites recreation and invites usage and still makes it successful for all these these fisheries. I think like a lot of people using the ocean, they naturally want to preserve the ocean. It's part of their life. Like we mm-hmm. live so close to the ocean, I can't imagine not taking a trip down there. But it's oftentimes an afterthought. But you know, isn't global warming just going to give us more ocean? 
<laughs> more ocean <laughs> in places people don't live. Yep. I don't know how often you visited the Yukon Territory in Canada, but I don't plan yes. on visiting anytime soon. Well, but there'd be ocean views <laughs> there in the next, well, hopefully not. I think the zoning idea is is really interesting from this perspective. I'm not pretending it's easy to do. I think it's interesting from a perspective it'll, it will take down the debates, the decades-long debates that we've been having around what is this for, and potentially protect us from making decisions for the sake of short-term economic growth at the expense of the ocean, which is going to hurt us down the line. And that's what we saw in Houston this year. They overdeveloped and eliminated so much of their wetland territory, and then concrete doesn't absorb water. So all of a sudden, that flood and the storm surge that came in had nowhere else to go except directly into people's homes. If we had taken a smarter zoning management with that, maybe, yeah, that might have curbed some short-term economic development in Houston, but they wouldn't be paying the bill they are now. Well, we might have to wait a few years before we can introduce more regulations, but hopefully not. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Trey Bean, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Oh, and if you're in the Pasadena area this weekend, on February 10th, I'll be giving a talk on the neurochemistry of pleasure, uh, along with some love songs and some pleasurable things to eat at the Jones Coffee Roastery uh, in Pasadena as part of a fundraiser for Pasadena Opera, where I'll be directing The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat in March. So come and join us. You can find information at PasadenaOpera.org. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiring show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.